0: Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. McKee gets it in the middle. They play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert. Back in.
1: Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew! Holiday. shot clock down to six, finds worn.
0: Welcome to another edition of the Indie Corn Rose podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Probably, uh, I mean, not probably, hopefully not blowing away in the snowstorm outside.
1: I'm not. I mean, I think that there's roughly about 10 inches of snow out there, but I haven't even set a foot outside my front door, so not blowing away. And maybe this is in part a Pacers podcast, but also a Wizards podcast, just to offer a brief hint of what we might get into today
0: well it might be yes we have uh two teams that are below 500 that do not want to be below 500 at least reportedly so yeah we've uh some interesting stuff to talk about there um the Pacers are one and one since the last time we talked uh with the victory over the los angeles clippers and a pretty harrowing loss to the orlando magic yesterday um that was fun. Uh, we have a lot to dive into. I guess the first thing before we even talk about the games, can we talk about Isaiah Jackson? Uh, unfortunately injured, uh, we have not really gotten any update. I know Rick said after the game that he was not in a boot and left, um, left the arena without a boot on. So that it seems at least positive, um, but he went down about 20 seconds into the game last night and did not come back. Um, but you put up 26-10 and 10 against the Clippers, which obviously, obviously is not a full encapsulation of everything. You wrote a really great article about the rookie contributions in that Clippers game over on Indy Cornrows that I think people should check out. But, yeah, where do you want to start with this? Because there's a, there's a lot to be excited about.
1: Yeah, Isaiah Jackson, let's just talk about everything that happened in that Clippers game. I mean, that's kind of why I wanted to write the article because, you know, the Clippers come in, and that's the eighth game of their eight-game road trip, second night of a back-to-back, 11 11- games in 11 different cities they had played even before three more before that road trip started so I mean I think that they definitely showed signs of fatigue just from the start of the game and also there's the you know the entire factor of when you're suddenly thrown into the starting lineup teams aren't really prepared for you they're not really considering that I thought you could tell like no disrespect to Serge Ibaka but he's clearly not at the level that he once was or even was within the last couple years and Mostly they were prioritizing, you know, if Karras drove to the rim, whether using the screen or not using the screen, they were stepping up and stopping the ball, which made the dunker spot pretty open for both Terry Taylor and Isaiah Jackson. And then when they came out of halftime, they're like, we know we can't keep letting Karras get downhill. So they started trapping Karras and then that allowed some of the lobs to be open as well because Eric Bledsoe and Reggie Jackson were pretty late. Similar to how the Pacers are a lot of times if if you're up at the level or if you're up above the level of the screen. So that opened up some of the stuff on the lob, but at the same time, some of the feats of athleticism that Isaiah Jackson was pulling off in that game, like when he switched hands and finished with his left, like off balance, Yeah, um, when when he slipped back behind Serge Ibaka and, and finished with his right, like adjusting his body in midair. Um, all of that's really impressive. Just in addition to that, you know, the fact that all of us are bringing up his overall vertical pop, his second jump on the offensive rebounds and what he can do as a lob threat. But what, what were you most impressed by of him in that game?
0: Well, yeah, like you mentioned, he had, uh, I just have not seen a lot of one-handed lob layup finishes before, like you mentioned, I think his touch around the rim was something that really surprised me. Or I shouldn't say surprised because that, that, it's not that I thought he had bad touch, but, um, to see him, like like you mentioned, like in midair hitting some of these layups, like just out with one hand. I'm just I'm not used to seeing that, like not just in uh, not just the Pacers, just the NBA in general. Like that is that was very impressive. Um, I was a big fan of the step in three he hit very early in the first quarter against the Clippers. We love to see that. Um he took a sidestep very late in that game as well. That was a little bit like it felt very heat checky, but um, <laughs> he, it was he was allowed to take it in that game as far as I'm concerned. But um, like you mentioned, you hit the second jump as well. I thought was ve- I mean I, I think I know that a couple of times. Like holy shit, his second jump is kind of ridiculous. Um, I'm trying to think what else. That three out. at
1: the top of the zone was like hilarious. They had yeah. it was like yeah. he just stood It was it, like yeah. oh, I am open. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And, and Serge Ibaka just kind of had a stare down with him. He's like, you're you going to shoot it. I'm not coming out to you. So I guess you should shoot it. And he did and like, all right, he went in. So that was fun.
1: Yeah, it was cool by the end of the game. That's why I wanted to bring up the one play that I put in that article because he and Dwayne Washington are at the elbows and then they slid down. I think, I think that Rick Carlisle gave them direction on this, but they effectively exchanged blocks so that they could get Batum on to Isaiah before they went up and then set the double ball screens out of horns and, and Dwayne Washington pointed for Karis to go off of that side so that Karis would have Batum switched onto the ball. And then, in that particular instance, he had, he had hit enough lob dunks that they did rotate over and tag him. And it just showed that like, yeah, nobody can jump with him. he's doing that so um I thought that was a good moment to to focus on and point out because earlier in the second half like I don't know what exactly was going on with Marcus Morris but he didn't even want to move like one inch over to try to help and rotate on some of those but I also think it's important to point out too because I've seen some of this that like he wasn't just doing this stuff as a screener like I think that uh about 14 of his 26 were scored on the roll but he also was crashing in from the perimeter he was finding spots in the zone um and doing stuff out of the dunker spot as well that i think you know would continue to fit him like the, you can run lob plays i guess is what i'm saying in other instances besides just using him in a double drag or just using him as the screener in spain that i think will be useful for the pacers moving forward especially if they're going to have one of turner or Sabonis remaining on the team
0: well yeah i mean no, obviously not to the same level, but you kind of see the inklings. I don't know how much of the Spurs you watch, but it's kind of like watching Yaka Pertle a little bit and just kind of floating in, in the space that's given to him and being able to attack it. And I thought that was I'm like having somebody who can be that much of a threat out of the dunker spot and just kind of floating in the restricted area or just outside the restricted area was cool. Like I'm not used to that. So that was very fun to see. Um, other things I really like too. It's, it's not anything like highlight worthy, but just the the quick passes he makes in the half court that are impromptu i really like um i think there was one off of like a broken play like um somebody like passed the ball and he just recovered it i mean it was it, they somebody almost turned over the ball and he recovered it and just made like a quick cross court whip like he does some really fun stuff that i like and it's just like you're not used to seeing guys who are 610 that aren't already like primary initiators doing stuff like that so um, I continue to just be impressed with some of the really small things he does in reading the game. And I appreciate his audacity, too. Like, he kind of hits a very fine line of being willing to do things without um, doing them egregiously, if that makes sense. Like, he, he knows what his role is, but also, like, he's, he's audacious enough to try things, which I appreciate for a young player.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you point out a good thing there that, you know, and what I said, that, like – they're not running a lot of stuff right now because of what lineups they have. And because mm-hmm. they've just been, you know, for most of the second part of the season doing more flow game, but like just watching the Mavericks last season and watching the Mavericks when they played the Pacers here recently, like um, they have plays for Dwight Powell under Rick Carlisle that I'm excited to see them try to pull out with Isaiah Jackson, like out of chin action, where then he can like veer and fake a screen and go back and get a lob. Like there's stuff that's existing out there that, i'm sure that they haven't even thought to implement it practice because they just haven't had the opportunity to know that he was mm-hmm. readily going to be in the lineup but even looking back at preseason when he was matching a lot of his minutes with sabonis and some of the things that he could do as a weak side rim protector i even want to like part of me even wants to imagine them running like you know high pick and roll with sabonis similar to what you know in some instances the Warriors do with Draymond Green and then have Ijax in the dunker and see if Sabonis can throw him a lob off of the roll and and the way that they could use the two of them so I think that there's some exciting things ahead there on that front Um, what did you think of him defensively in that game
0: I actually so I'm not gonna lie one of the notes I had I thought he looked a little bit more comfortable in zone Um, I didn't think it was anything like groundbreaking but he like, at least to me, I felt like his positioning was a little bit better. He didn't seem as caught out in – it's not like he was caught out in the middle. Of nowhere. it's not just him, but, like, we've talked about, like, he's still very raw and figuring out where to be as a big man on defense. I thought that um, – I mean, I felt at least that he was much better um, in this game against the Clippers playing in zone.
1: Yeah. He – he gets caught sometimes where he wants to send help where he doesn't really need to. Mm. So he would got like lost in space on a Reggie Jackson drive once where his guy was wide open behind the three point line. And then he did still leave his feet a number of times, like, you know, credit to him that he protected his fouls much better in this game. And in part because of how they were switching when they weren't in the zone, a lot of the time, you know, if, if there was a post up to defend, A lot of times it was either Terry Taylor or Torrey Craig kind of banging with Serge Ibaka, and not that that even happened that often, but there wasn't as many opportunities for him to really pick up fouls, but when he did switch out onto the perimeter, he did a better job of keeping his hands in check but he left his feet on a closeout against Ibaka, And then there was another one inside on the paint where he left it. And then, and then they made a little shovel pass to the dunker spot. And I think there was one or two other spots where that happened. I know they've talked to him, like, you know, you have such a quick jump, just make sure that you're jumping second because you're still going to be able to get up there so quick. So um, I think that it still has some issues and I, And I mean, their zone as a whole still had some issues. It was a little bit better than the first game against the Clippers, but they still didn't figure out what they're doing in the corners. And sometimes it can be really hard to differentiate which type of zone they're in, not for the same reasons as what was the case under Nate Bjorkren. But like because they set their bottom forward so high deliberately above their checks, um, kind of in a way that the Heat do sometimes, it can be hard to tell if they're in one, three, one, or if they're in two, three, you just have to really watch the rotations and see who's running where. And and there were times where either too slow bumping down because of what their other rotations were up top, or they were, the Clippers were purposely pinning them in, which was smart to do because I'm sure they remembered how many of those corner threes they made. So, um, I think that was overall like and not to take anything away from him, but it was a really good matchup for Isaiah to have that type of game and build confidence because he wasn't going to have to, you know, give up strength against a bigger center like what happened in New Orleans against Jonas Valanciunas. The Clippers were coming in, you know, off the second item of back to back and they were going to predominantly play small, which was going to suit him pretty well. And just because like his athleticism allows him to cover for some mistakes. Like there was a few times where he was way out of position and the corner. But because he can cover ground so quickly, he went from one corner clear to the other one to close out. So um, definitely a lot to like and a lot of fun potential with Ajax. It's just too bad, like ban ankles, ban feet first 20 seconds of that game for him to already be out. And hopefully he doesn't have to be out um, long with that. Is there anything else you wanted to cover from that Clipper game, or do you want to move on to what happened against the Magic?
0: Um, one of the notes I had in the Clipper game, I don't know if you noticed this, Ijax falls a lot, like a lot on court. Um, I, I don't know if i maybe I'm like getting too micro with it, but I just noticed that part of it, mean, maybe it's just because he jumps so often, but I feel like improving his balance is going to be a big thing moving forward too, because he does have a, like, I, he felt like almost double digit times in that game against the Clippers.
1: And sometimes it's the way you fall too. Like this yeah. might be somewhat reductive, but like just comparing like Joel Embiid and Anthony Davis, like it feels like Anthony Davis goes down like a heap yeah. a lot of the yeah. time under the basket versus like, because Joel Embiid has like the volleyball background. Sometimes when he goes down, he knows how to fall and roll out of that context. So, mm-hmm. um, I did notice that the same thing that you did, but I didn't, I didn't make a note of it. I wasn't, I wasn't um that vigilant of it, but
0: yeah, I was, uh, I was going full-on in Spectre mode, but yes. Um, <laughs> anything else from that game? I'm trying to think. Well, I guess we can – we'll talk even more about Terry in the next game. But, uh, yeah, let's talk about the Orlando game. Um, okay. I, obviously, like we mentioned, Ijax went down pretty immediately, which sucked. That was really not fun to see and hope that he's okay. Um, a very quick random thing that I just want to hit on, I don't know how much you've watched of Orlando this year. I really love what they do with their starting lineup. I think a lot of people would look at the, the magic and be like, oh, they're 12 and 41. They can't be very good. They can't be that fun to watch. They're one of my favorite teams to watch this year. I think Jamal Mosley's done a really good job with them. I love how they try and distribute everything among their uh, their starting lineup to evenly to distribute the offense. And Wendell Carter Jr., part of it is I do have an affinity for any player that wears goggles. But Wendell Carter Jr., like his growth into being just a true face-up for like faking DHOs yesterday and part of it again Pacers defense was bad and there was not a anyone even close to his size once Ijax went down but um I enjoyed the experience of watching the Magic play yesterday and that's a that's the kind of way that I'll lead into talking about the Pacers
1: you are far kinder than I am because I thought that there were several stretches of that game that were very difficult watches. It was
0: a bad game all around. Yeah. yeah. Like the there was probably was a fair.
1: four minute stretch in the fourth quarter where so many, it was so circusy. It was like a vaudeville skip for a bit. I was like, will either team ever score again? And I, got I also my wondered desk multiple
0: times while watching this game. It was, it was a slog. Yeah.
1: Then there was, what was going on with Robin Lopez? Like I was so confused by what what happened there. Like I get that the Pacers were small and were started out the game shooting the three well. I think they were ten of nineteen from three in the first half, and that quickly slowed down in the second. But he didn't come into the game until there was, I think around 44 seconds in the third quarter played a total of five and a half minutes and scored three times in that, because I kept thinking, Oh, they'll probably, they'll probably play him at some point just because, you know, he's captain hook and the Pacers have literally no one who can deal with his length and size. Then I was like, well, he scored three times, better take him out. Same thing with Terrence Ross. Like Terrence Ross, I think played like 18 minutes and he took like what, four shots,
0: which is a very non-Terrence Ross thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it was weird. You're right. I mean, they played, they played, I think what, almost five bigs yesterday. Yeah. Cause they played Rolo, uh, Mo Wagner, Bamba, Wendell. Um, and I guess Admiral school feels more of a way. The Mo Boba
1: experience was rough.
0: Yeah. He had a, he had a very difficult game yesterday. Um, that he's been side note that he looked so good to start the year and it has just gone downhill from there. But, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, where do I even want to go with this? Uh, It's just like it's hard to take too much away from this matchup because they really struggled to contain Franz Wagner and his length because he has like just the right amount of burst on top of his length and craft that just makes him like a very funky, weird player Mm -hmm. to handle. And they had nobody who could really check him yesterday. Um, And then, like you mentioned, you add in Wendell and his size and the the rollo experience was weird. As you mentioned, like he, I thought he was just gonna play the entire fourth quarter and score 20 points. Did not, um, which was funny. Um, I I mean, I think my biggest takeaway from this game were some of the things that happened in it that weren't even the game. And I don't mean to just immediately pull into that, but there were a couple of like on court spats that happened uh, that were. I, saying on characteristic would be wrong because it's happened multiple times this year but like karis got into it with with chris a little bit or not even got into it like you could tell chris was just like frustrated about the play um and karis and justin got on each other in the fourth quarter when it got tied 108 108 after somebody blew a coverage in the corner um and i mean that's another part of the story too the the magic they only the magic only scored 11 threes. I think all of them had to have been from the corners because it felt like the the Pacers just got eradicated by the corners last night. Um but I mean going back to that, like uh, I think you posted the clip on Twitter today. It was uh supposed to be a, a handoff for Duarte, and Karis just rejects it. And Duarte's like puts his hands up, like, yo, what are we doing? And Karis goes into ISO mode. And I mean, that just was kind of Unfortunately, emblematic of a lot of the things that have been happening with the offense over the last month, uh, even longer, to be honest. So, encapsulation of the whole season.
1: Yeah, I mean, and Rick Carlisle had a reaction as well, or at least it seemed as though he did, where he kind of threw his hands up a little bit when Karis decided to keep on that. I mean, it was clearly supposed to be pistol. Yeah. Duarte was supposed to get the ball on the wing handoff and come off a screen from Terry Taylor and or either hand it off to Terry Taylor, to then to flow into Chicago on the other side. I'm not sure which one they were actually intending to run, but but Duarte was supposed to get the ball, and that's why he looked as confused as he did. I mean, Carris took 24 shots. Yeah. which he keeps having a very high shot volume I and mean, it's it's getting more difficult to excuse some of it. Cause again, like if you go back to the heater he had in the fourth quarter against the Lakers, and I know I mentioned this on the prior podcast, but like, it made sense. Like if Carmelo Anthony's going to be in a drop against you, or they're going to switch Carmelo Anthony on you, let him go to town. But when not all your shots are falling and you know, Lou Dort's ducking under and you're having to, You know, go through a bunch of rigmarole to get him switched off in Oklahoma City or, you know, you're not connecting on everything last night. I'm not sure he needs to have quite that same volume. And um, I don't know if this is before your time, but this is the metaphor that I would use. Did you watch the show Lizzie McGuire when you were growing up? Yeah,
0: of course I did when I was a kid.
1: Okay, so do you remember the episode where Gordo, like, gets obsessed with the Rat Pack? Like, he wants to listen to jazz music and wear a fedora. And other stuff. Okay. Yes,
0: I do remember. Okay,
1: so you remember it. So he goes to school, and then all of a sudden, Ethan Kraft, the cool kid, decides that Rat Pack stuff is cool, and then the entire school decides it's cool because Ethan Kraft is doing it. Well, from that point forward, Gordo's like, you know, I I don't want to be, you know, I don't I don't like this anymore, just because I want to be different. And sometimes when I watch Karis Levert pay, play basketball and he's running offense that would that's what it feels like like he just wants to be different for the sake of being different like he doesn't want to let the offense do the work for him. he wants to neglect as many picks as possible and go against the grain and that looks cool and there's benefit to it in certain circumstances but also like, the defense doesn't always know what he's doing, which is a good thing, but neither do his teammates. Like you could tell that Terry Taylor had to completely adjust out of that. So he could go down to the baseline and screen for Karis and to Caris's credit, he ended up weaving into the lane and made a little pull up too, but it just feels counterproductive at times. And I know that his name's been out there heavily in trade rumors that the Pacers seem like they will likely move him at the deadline, or at least are considering moving him at the deadline. So, you know, I understand that you might, not feel the same connection to the franchise and the team and maybe that's leading to some of it maybe he's trying to show out for other teams that might want him maybe the pacers are okay with his volume of shots for some of those same reasons i have no idea that's not any source reporting but there's so many instances this year and it didn't necessarily feel so much this way last year where i just want him to let the offense do the work for him
0: yeah no i agree i mean i is is there anybody in the nba who rejects more screens who is to say i'd like
1: yeah shay Gilgis alexander's <laughs> the only player who does
0: yeah literally it's just like i don't know i agree i mean um i think some people might say we're being too harsh but i just think like this is the stuff that's been going on all year it's not i mean it's like we've we've completely talked about it like he just looks like a different player than he was last year and it's it's odd and it's hard to understand um, and I do like you mentioned, I want to provide some sympathy too because it, it can't be easy, but also, like, okay, what about the other 11 guys who are playing too? And like, or other 10 yesterday, like, I just I don't know. It uh, and I,
1: and I agree with you that some of the what seems to be evident, like on the possession you're mentioning when the game's tied, and on I mean, two possessions in a row, they switch out, and Terry Taylor had to try to control Wagner on the Euro step and got beat and Karis was guarding Wendell Carter Jr. and would not smash down to help. So that ended up being a layup. So the next time it occurs, Justin slides all the way over from the weak side into the paint to try to contain and Karras has to zone up the other two shooters and he doesn't even move to go X out into the corner. And then when there's a reaction when Justin is late getting back out, they kind of have a spat there, kind of like what we saw in the OKC game when Karen Karis kind of threw the errant pass to Justin, and they kind of got on each other. And like, yeah. I'm not saying that they don't like each other or that there's a chemistry issue. It just feels like a lot of the times when things go wrong, he's kind of getting on people. I don't know if you've noticed that.
0: Uh, yeah, no, it is a. Uh, I mean, it's it's happened many times this year. So it's yeah, it's a. Uh, and I, again, it's not just Karis. Like this has happened with with other guys throughout the year, it's just, that's the team this year. Um, I mean,
1: it's, it's also kind of hard to ignore some of the stuff that's going on in transition. The team's transition defense as a whole has really struggled, especially over the last two weeks, having issues, getting the ball to one side of the floor, getting the first big back and loading to the ball, um, just getting back in general. But the amount of times that he'll be like just backpedaling instead of using a crossover step and, and monitoring where the ball is. I mean, the one possession I showed today, um, he just, he backpedals and then just watches them throw the ball to the wing and doesn't even try to close out. Like some of that stuff's just getting hard not to point out. I mean, I I literally broke my Twitter sabbatical just so I could show that one clip that that was to the point that I felt about it.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, his defense has never been, been, uh, exemplary in Indiana, but the last two weeks of defense from him have been embarrassing if we're being completely honest. Like, um, I mean, I think at most he's staying in front in quotation marks of his guy, but like you mentioned, I mean he's just straight up not contesting sometimes, and I, I don't know. I just it, it is really frustrating to watch. Um, I don't. Again, we're not in the locker room, so we can't really fully get in on this, but it is a, uh, it is definitely frustrating. You can tell it rubs it rubs some guys on the team the wrong way.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, just kind of seeing that reaction, too, it, it just kind of feels like in a lot of ways, you know, I, I I know that Rick Carlisle values playing flow game and having random offense because of, you know, the Pacers aren't going to be in the playoffs this year. But in the long run, you need to be able to have some of that because teams are going to scout your plays and, and you need to be able to play with a certain degree of freedom. But at the same time, you know, he also has play calls that they want to run and it feels like Caris would much rather be doing a lot of freelancing. So it feels like there's some push and pull there. And I'm not completely opposed to Karis doing that. I mean, he showed that he could do it at a very high level in the bubble when Jacques Vaughn was, was coaching him. I mean, they ran very streamlined simple things for him to be doing a lot out of high pick and roll and in various other spots. So um, some of it just feels like, I don't even want to term it as fit, but like an awkward dynamic there yeah. between him and the offense at times. But it also might have been a point, too, that because they were playing so small, he was going to have to be doing more, some more self-creation, and a lot of their opponents lately have been switching, and it's not like they have a lot of isolation threats. It just has felt sort of excessive at times. But let's move on to happier topic. Terry yeah. Taylor.
0: Oh, my God. Yes, 24
1: please. points and 16 rebounds for the 6'5 center. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he's listed. So I was on my uh, – I don't – I don't really take it super seriously, but I do fantasy basketball with some of my friends who don't really cover basketball, um, which is a nice cheap advantage for me. Um, But (laughs) he's listed as a shooting guard on uh, on ESPN fantasy, which is like, exactly. Like I have really enjoyed the Terry Taylor experience. Like luckily i would gotten to watch him a little bit in Fort Wayne um, this season because a friend of mine, uh who covers the wizards is like he just he loves scanning and seeing what's going on all around especially in the g league just to see if there's like some random guy who's falling out and like Terry Taylor was like pretty easily the most productive player in the G League this this year before they had their pause. Um and you can see why in watching him like I mean as you as you, you've pointed out earlier like nothing is being run for him or Isaiah Jackson for the most part like he's just out there making plays. I mean, uh, this last game, obviously, against Orlando was fantastic. The rebounding from him is kind of wild. Like, his ability to get boards at his size uh, – I mean, he's got a massive wingspan. I don't know what his wingspan is. It's got to be close to seven feet. Like, he's like – you, like you said, he's only 6'5", but, like, he plays a little bit bigger than that because he does have a little bit of vertical pop, too. But um, I was really impressed with what he's able to do. Like – uh. Some of the stuff is hard to tell with him as a screener. I do think I wish he would set harder screens, but also like he gets his advantage on rolls by just opening his hips and getting into them. Um, that's more minute or whatever. But regardless, like he's just, I, I think my big note for him, he hit two threes over those two games. It was one of one of three from the field. I was like, you know, if he can just like be a good corner shooter, like. I see viability in him as a rotation player because I didn't think he was bad defensively either. Like if he's not being asked to be the five, I think there's a lot more intrigue with him as a defender he was asked to do a little too much more because they needed him to. But, um, I mean, he's kind of, he can switch. Like he could, like, I feel like you could see him viably in a lineup with Ijax and some of the other bigger wings on the team doing more of the switch everything mold. Um, He has some passing feel. He's not, like, amazing at it, but, like, you can see the vision there. Uh, He's just a fun player who I think could involve in some sets creatively. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed watching him. He was one of the bright spots in these two games.
1: I think he does a lot of things really intuitively that I appreciate. He sets impromptu
0: screens a lot, which I appreciate.
1: Yeah, I have a hot take on that, but I'm too afraid to share. Oh, no,
0: please let it go. Let it go.
1: I think he might be the second best screener on the team. He
0: he probably is like honest to God, he might be the second best screener on the team.
1: And here's why, because Goga is still having a lot of issues in that department, running around, setting air picks on off ball screens in particular. Isaiah Jackson engages in extracurriculars. He's the polar opposite of Goga. Like he wants to get his elbows involved in screens that Mm -hmm. when they don't need to be. And then, you know, miles has made some progress, but not in the way that I'm about ready to say. Carrie understands what angles he needs to use based on what players are involved in the action. So like when he was in OKC, some of it's scripted because they are like using both sides of the floor and having him get into step up screens, but not everyone will be as cognizant as him of okay, Lou Dort's going under against Karras. I'm going to set the step up and I'm actually going to set the step up and have it be completely flat. So Lou Dort can't duck under and is going to have to take a much wider route to go. I noticed that in that game, he set a seal screen against the Orlando Magic. The only person on the Pacers that I've ever seen do that is Sabonis in the the Gore top department. And Terry Taylor actually attempted to do that um, he uses flare screens a lot that are unscripted at the elbows as a means to clear out the nail help so that really they'll feel enjoy. they'll feel his body so that they'll step away from the nail and help that drive go through. So um, that's part of my Terry Taylor hot take for the day that I'm sure I'll probably get roasted for after only two games. I don't games think I've been you playing. can get
0: roasted for that. Like, it, but, I mean, that's it's true. I don't think there's anything wrong with that
1: um but he also runs the floor very hard in transition like he's a good rim runner yeah and makes the effort to do it and then I also appreciated a couple times on defense where he was very aware of the shot clock when the magic were playing 5 out and uh Mobamba was up top that's who he was guarding and he knew that hey the shot clock's running down I can still slide over and help and completely release off of him. And sometimes the Pacers don't always do that. Like their help defense isn't always there in isolation situations. That's a nice way so, of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I enjoyed the Terry Taylor experience.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I think the other thing I was going to add on him too. Um, not like, I, I'm not trying to be critical. Like I do think like, I would like to see him even be more physical at the point of attack. Like I think he sees ground a little bit um, and it's kind of comfortable just using his length to, Rope guys in, but I feel like he has the physicality to come to, you know, be a little bit more aggressive on uh around screens or not even around screens, but like, you know, if, if there is a switch. So um, part of that, too, was just like communicating switches, which this is this team is not good at, as we've noted. But um, I, I mean, I really want to see him be part of the rotation the rest of the year, showing what he showed. I, I don't know if he will be, but um, I mean, he's 22. Why not? Like, he's a young guy. This team has not been good. So give him a shot. He actually like he did something which I find important. Like, let's just see him play, please.
1: Yeah, because it doesn't look like he's behind in a way that like prevents guys from being able to run stuff or do things. You know what I mean? Like he's he's polished in the sense that he knows what's going out on the floor for the most part, even Mm -hmm. if he you know, is still developing skills, but actually let's do talk about that rotationally just a little bit because, you know, I've seen people, you know, talk about, you know, if the Pacers don't make a trade, you still need to find a way for Isaiah Jackson to play. And I don't disagree with that. Like he needs to play somewhere. Hopefully if he isn't hurt for, you know, however long, but here's my thing. He could have been playing all this time. Like, remember yeah. when the the original athletic report came out and it was like, you know, the Pacers want to go through a rebuild because they want Chris Duarte to be playing and, and to open up time for Isaiah Jackson. I still don't feel like I completely know whether I see him as a 4 or a 5 long-term. I'm going to need to see him against a wider variety of opponents. I think in general, when you're a 4 or 5, you're probably a 5, but yeah. I still want to see how he operates defensively against, you know, more imposing frames and some of what he do he does offensively but point being like if they just wanted to get him minutes he could have been playing at the four like do they have this incredibly deep four rotation that i'm just not aware of
0: uh noted off the dribble mid-range shooter tory craig would like to step in um but yeah no even then he's not really a four like he's i mean he's he is a four but like you don't really want him to play the four that much um no they really don't have a four is my answer (laughs)
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if, if it was really about finding it minutes, they could have been finding it minutes if, if yeah. that's what it was. I mean, and credit to Torrey who, you know, made what four threes in the first half and also yeah. went and ISOed and hit a step back against Wendell Carter jr. Um, no, I'm I like, didn't mean
0: that to be rude to Torrey. It's just, no, every no, time no, I, I watched that that man do some off the dribble. It, I just, it just sends me into shock because it's, I, that just did not happen prior to this year. Like he hasn't done that since he was at South Carolina state. So um actually it was really funny because i'll never forget i tweeted that at the beginning of the year in preseason. And i was like we're getting tory craig ball handling out here and i had a friend of mine who's a scout send me videos from when he was running pick and roll at south carolina state in like the mid-2010 so it was kind of funny but um what in regards to the rotation moving forward, like, what do you mean? Like, it, like you want to like in terms of who, how you want to see it play out or.
1: No, I was just making the point that like oh, they yeah. could have been playing IJacks all this mm-hmm. time if they really thought that he was ready to be getting minutes and wanted him to play. I mean. If the rumors are to be believed, they've they've at least been scanning the market for Tori and Justin and, and Jeremy, which would open up, you know, minutes even further, given that Tori and Justin off and on have both played minutes at the four throughout the season. So um, I don't think that it would be impossible to find Terry and Ijax and minutes, at least yeah. in my opinion.
0: No, I agree. It shouldn't be at least, but we'll see. Um, I did have another thing too. Uh, I really enjoy how hard Dwayne Washington Jr. gets down in transition. Um, I think just in that, uh, in the Orlando game, Like he had a couple of just really quick looks because he sprints down the court transition, got a wide open corner three out of it. Um, He's really just been playing well recently. I know he wasn't amazing or actually I think it was in the Clipper game where that happened. He wasn't awesome last night just in terms of shooting from the floor, but I continue to enjoy what he brings to the team. So that was was just another quick thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was stupendous. I mean, the, the Clippers in part were denying the wide action, no matter who was coming off of it. But they were really – I mean, that's what I had in the article. Like, they were really denying him out at the three-point line after he had heated up in the way that he did. And then to see – and that's another thing that Terry does. He's very good. Um, shown some flashes with fake handoffs when when he sees that guys are going to switch out, which opened up for him because they started worrying about Dwayne Washington getting the ball in those situations after he had hit the one off the DHO earlier. But he, Dwayne had some clunky spots in that Orlando game. Like, I, yes, especially at the end of the third quarter – when Lance was waiting for him to give them the ball back, and he ended up taking that, like holding the ball for the entire rest of the clock before he took a really bad off balance three. So, after he heated up a little bit in the fourth I noticed that they took him out for about a minute and a half before they put him back in because he had also gotten ahead of himself just a little bit with a couple of the shots that he took so some of that can be tamed a little bit but I mean I think the Pacers have to be really happy with what they're getting out of all the rookies to be honest and and you don't want to take it too far because you know O'Shea also surged toward the back end of last season and hasn't maintained that exact same level I mean I'm also you know old enough to remember when Miles and and Joe young went to golden state and each scored like 25 points a piece. And, you know, Joe young wasn't going to be averaging 25 points per game in the NBA. So I want to maintain realistic expectations and I can see mistakes that they've all made and that, you know, defenses will change over time and, and they have had an advantage, a rest advantage, and they will again tomorrow in their next game against both of these opponents, which hasn't been frequent for the Pacers this season. And I think that that showed up from Orlando and the Clippers, but, um, Good rookie draft class, and you can't always say that for the Pacers. That
0: is uh, that is definitely the truth. Um, did you have anything else you want to hit on from these two games before we move on?
1: No, I think we can move on to our, our next big rumor mill segment.
0: Yeah. Um, so from, I believe it was Josh Robbins and Sean Sharania, um, or was it Sam Amick? I can't remember off top. Oh, no, it was David Aldridge, my bad. Yeah, David Aldridge
1: Um, and Josh Robbins.
0: Yeah, Um, so basically on the impending uh, sequence of doom that's going to happen in Washington uh, with figuring out whether or not Bradley Beal is going to be in Washington moving forward, basically uh, they hit on that it's becoming, uh, instead of the very clear no that was coming out earlier in the year about whether or not Bradley Beal will be leaving the Wizards, uh, the last week has made it less and less apparent as to what's going to happen. Um, And a lot of this was in terms of floating out uh, rumors about DeMondis Sabonis and um, the Wizards potentially being very interested in him. So I'll let you expand from there.
1: Yeah, Jake Fisher, friend of the pod, had a whole article mainly about the Wizards where he talked about their interest in Sabonis in the morning and then this subsequent report. Came out from David Aldridge and Josh Robbins later in the day. So just for people who haven't read it, I'll just read the little paragraph so people are up to date. It says, with the Wizards fading, having lost six consecutive games, most sources expect the team will push for a significant front court upgrade around Beal. Two of the most rumored possibilities are Detroit forward Jeremy Grant and Indiana big man DeMontis Sabonis. But sources predict the Wizards will encounter significant difficulties acquiring a high impact player of Sabonis' stature without giving up at least 21 year old Demi Odd Denny Aud, sorry, Avdija or 23 year old Rui Hashimura, or perhaps both, along with multiple draft picks, Indiana has pulled back on putting Sabonis front and center in trade talks, engaging teams more on center Miles Turner and Wayne Karis Lavert. And then in Jake's article, he essentially wrote that while Bradley Beal hasn't specifically requested that they go after Sabonis, he has kind of rubber stamped it, which, you know, a lot of this has been circulating probably since the beginning of December where Quentin Mayo, who covers the Wizards on Substack, had been indicating that they were interested in Jeremy Grant and Sabonis. And then, you know, there was Bradley Beal liking tweets about Sabonis and various wizards following him on Twitter. And yes, I loathe myself for bringing these things up, but (laughs) it's the reality of the week that we live in. So I thought that we should at least talk about what our general thoughts on that are, as well as, you know, what our thoughts are about Rui and the other potential prospects that would come back to the Pacers if such a deal were to take place.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not entirely sure how I want to start with this. I mean, number one, let's, uh, let's
1: talk about the players first. How about yeah, that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to go. Um, Let's talk about Rui first. Cause I'm okay. very interested to see where you're at on him. Um, I think. Uh, okay. Here's, here's the biggest thing I'll ask you first. Do you view him more as a wing or as a big, I guess there's some leeway in between, but I think that's a good starting point with him.
1: I view him as a four.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm in the same boat. I think, uh, he is, he does some wingy things and he does some big things. Like he, uh, my, if you had to give a comp for him right now, it would be, uh, Memphis Rudy Gay with San Antonio Rudy Gay's physical, physical attributes. (laughs) And like, so like he moves, like he's, uh, kind of like more of a, more of a true four and a big, but he does a lot of the operating on mid range, like stop right at the post. He shot a little bit better this year, but on lower volume, um, I, the defense isn't amazing. It's gotten better uh, since, I mean, he was terrible as a rookie and it's gotten better. Um, It's still not great, but uh, I mean, I guess I'll ask you this. What do you view as the upside with him? And I don't want to be like too blanket statement and unfair, but like, I mean, he's 23 right now. I think this is his third year in the league. He obviously had a very difficult start, um, was dealing with some personal problems that haven't been unveiled. Um, and that, I imagine, really took a toll on him. He did not get to participate in preseason, um, missed all of camp. So, uh, I mean, yeah, where, where are you at on what you've seen with him this year?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think all that has to be baked in. In preparation yeah. for this, I spent most of yesterday and watched almost all of his minutes because he's only played in 12 games. Yeah. So you have to take some of that into account, and you also have to take into account that he's gone from Scott Brooks to Wes Unseld as a coach and Scott Brooks ran a more contained offense and Russell Westbrook, you know, was soaking up a lot of the usage. And in some ways I think that suited Rui a little bit more than playing in the flow game with Wes Unsell Jr. Like the Wizards offense is more enjoyable to watch, but um, I feel like with Rui, it takes him too long sometimes to get where he wants to go. And every decision is a beat too slow. Like, and I don't know if that's all about his build, necessarily and he is shooting the three a little bit better but if you when you watch him play especially when he played the raptors that's kind of a good game to assess him in certain respects because they did not care about him as a shooter and nor do most teams they're going to be in driving lanes off of him whether he's up at the slot or in the corner and then it becomes what's he going to do about it. Like, is he going to respond and look for a timely backdoor cut? Is he going to try to get around that? Is he going to be able to knock down the shot? So maybe they'll they'll show a little bit more respect. But to this point, defenses aren't really responding. I think for his career, he has shot 27% from the corners, and he's been contested so far this season only on 22 attempts. That's not baking in last night's game yet, but his contest frequency is 33%. So his defender is going to be off. And the problem is, is that if he isn't being contested, he's not really getting to show the full breadth of his game, which is why I think when you watch him play, you know, Toronto or Philadelphia or some of the opponents that have played zone against him, he almost fares a little bit better. Similarly to like the defensive disaster that was the Pacers in Washington last year when they were playing box and one and triangle and two, because all he has to do at that point is he just flashes from the sideline into the middle of the paint and gets to hit, you know, a catch and shoot square up mid range too. Or, I mean, they don't run a lot of set plays for him and that's kind of the thing of their offense as a whole, but he'll flash up to the elbow and get like an elbow post up. But if he can't use a pump fake and get his first, his first move, that's where I'm saying it's like, he's almost, I don't want to call him slow. It just takes him too long to figure he's out what mechanical move.
0: Score. Yes, it takes him too long
1: to figure out what move he wants to use. And he doesn't necessarily have counters in certain situations. And then just what reads he makes in general, it's like the nail defender can be sitting there and he's going to go at them and try to score in traffic. Or if he's in transition, he'll be solely focused on getting to the rim. I think it was the game I watched of him in Boston where he has, Denny in the corner and Kaspert on the wing and he just tries to to score through traffic. And there will be times where you know he'll show impressive flashes. Like he had a really crafty finish in the game against Toronto, um, stepped through traffic and then finished with his left. But as many of those as there are, there's gonna be others where it's like, oh, they cut off my first step and now I don't quite know what to do. And it just feels like, you know, for the pacers' sake, like if we're just saying in theory, like Sabonis is out, he's in. I see him as a four and I think it would be hard with the way that Rick Carlisle is currently running the offense. If you have miles and Rui as your front court, because
0: a collective, uh, they both rough.
1: I mean, it's not even just the passing. It's the sense that both of them are still struggling and not that Rui is old by any sense. It's only his third season in the league, but they both struggle to find their own usage. Like just as, as a comparison, like I see so many times the critiques with Sabonis are like, well, you know, he's harder to fit into another, like let's say Sabonis gets traded anywhere. He's harder to fit into a team's offense because you have to run all the plays through him and Miles can fit in more easily. I'm like, I get that in the sense that, you know, Sabonis is going to be at his best filtering more touches and, you know, setting a screen and then getting the ball and jettisoning it off to a guy who's maybe a snipe pull up three threat. And then that guy can get into the lane. Like, I understand that, that you're going to build stuff around him in that way but in the sense that of actually calling and running plays you do not have to call or run plays with Sabonis he can play out of random he can play out of flow game and he's one of the few pacers on players on the team who can do that very consistently when it comes to miles if he's going to get extra shots and be involved he needs there to be plays run for him because he's not going to find those spots very readily on his own with the exception of he has i think been better at finding spots to duck in and certain circumstances this year. So I feel somewhat similarly about Rui just because I, I've seen this transition from, you know, Russell Westbrook drawing gravity and, you know, being able to dish the ball to him. And then, you know, that's all that he has to do or Scott Brooks actually calling plays for him. And now it's like, he doesn't quite know where to find his spots. But again, it's only been 12 games, but I think some of that showed up last season as well. When you know, he wasn't necessarily directly involved in the offense, but I don't know where you are on that particular fact.
0: No, I mean, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think the part of what makes me say that he's more of a big, and I mean more like, you know, a guy who's a four or five, like, and I don't really see him as a five, just because some defensive stuff. But um, like you mentioned, like he is his, the way that he processes the game. And I don't mean this to, to say that he's like stupid or anything like that, not in the slightest, like he just does not see the court, that quickly, or he doesn't see things uh, happen that quickly. And it takes him a second to make things happen. Um, when, when he's able to put things together, it looks great. But like you mentioned, I think a lot of it's like, can you segment the court and and put him in the best positions to make it happen? I'm just not really sure the Pacers can do that. Like, uh, like who is, I, I don't necessarily know who's getting him the ball or, or creating the, um, the tilted floor that's going to get him a better advantage like i i I don't know i'm not trying to be too harsh with it i just like i think he clearly has upside but i just uh i would uh provide a little bit of pause because like you mentioned i mean he has some of the same issues as miles and it's going to take him some time to work through those things and to an extent i'm not sure where he gets to you know in terms of what that looks like um
1: yeah i mean i think ideally last night against the sixers he had a pretty decent game where Mm -hmm. you know if he is in the corner And Danny Green's guarding him, you know, he did get into the post and make a nice move there. Or if, you know, George Niang's guarding him on the perimeter, be able to use this first step and get to the basket. Like that's kind of the spot that I think that he ultimately fills at the four. I'm just not sure if all of that comes to like how exactly it comes together if you're wanting to run flow game, which if I'm being honest, that's where I think that the NBA is moving for what I said earlier. I think when you get into the playoffs, you need to be able to have guys who can do that. So, I mean, feel can come like I'm not going to rule it out and say that it isn't possible. It's just what the reality is right now. I think he struggles in that particular area.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like to me, I feel like the the ideal version of him is somebody who can become a really good uh, uh, like a good a good screener and like an outlet on the short roll. Like maybe he, there's some ways that is passing and, and just feel for the game can come through if you're able to rep out um, really work on just making the reads to the corner and stuff like that but yeah I agree I which think you
1: we, know he's not getting a ton of reps yeah at they because haven't of who really else there is on all. the roster but he does have my classic pet peeve which is if you're going to set a screen and you're going to slip then actually slip like don't just <laughs> yeah. set the screen and then just stand there and not put any pressure on the defense and he does that quite a bit whether it's on the roll or the slip or it's like okay I've set it And now I've just kind of leaked out a little bit. Now we've moved on to the next thing. So um, defensively, I think he's pretty decent against like-sized players in one-on-one situations. His screen navigation leaves a little bit to be desired. And then off-ball, especially in transition, he has some problems recognizing, like, if he's going to get screened in transition or uh, sending help, like, You know, maybe I think it was the game that I watched yesterday against the Thunder where Kyle Kuzma had Shea Gill just pretty much taken care of and he went and helped anyways and then Mike Muscala just walked into a three. You'll see that type of stuff happen fairly often with him or he sends some really weird help rotations and his closeouts are strangely like those can be an adventure, which is weird because you wouldn't think that from his body type and the way that he positions himself in other situations on defense.
0: Yeah. He takes some really odd angles on closeouts. Um, yeah, I, I think the defense, like, I I think he'll at least get to being neutral, but I do wonder what it looks like entirely. Like I think there were some hopes he'd become a weak side rim protector. I don't see that. Like, I'm Mm. I'm not sure that he has really shown anything other than being big and having a wingspan. Um, sounds harsh, but like there were, there were some hopes for that at Gonzaga and that's just not, I don't think that's the case. Um, Again, like, I still think, like, he's a guy who I think is, like, I could be comfortable-ish projecting him out, like, if some things go right, like a viable NBA starter in the league at, at a position of need. But, again, like, a lot of things have to have to kind of be repped out, too. And he, he's a I, – I, I put this on Twitter, my thing with him, and we'll talk about Denny, too, but with Rui, I was like, you know, I like Rui, and I think that there's potential there. But if the Pacers thing is – you know, we want to be good again next year. We want to r- find a new window next year. I'm like, I'm not sure that I entirely see that because I think he's still a decent ways away from being a guy who is impacting the game uh, positively at a high level.
1: Yeah. Well, do you want to move on to Denny?
0: Yes, let's talk about Denny. Um, Can we talk about his defense first? Because I have really enjoyed Denny's defense this year.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, a game that I would recommend if people just want to, you know, have an entry point with both of them, if they haven't watched a lot of Wizards is the game they recently played against the Raptors, because Denny had stops in that game against all three of Fred Van Vliet, Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam. He's really good at stopping momentum in transition. And then he's also really good again about taking counters away from people in isolation. So, you know, he had Fred Van fleet on the wing and, and Fred tried to pump fake him multiple times and get to another move and he couldn't see tried to get to a counter in the post and he couldn't um, just a very fun isolation defender.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. My one, like my only real gripe with him is that he's very willing to concede ground. Like he's very good at knowing how much room he has and uh, how to use his length to really bother people late. But I still just like you, you're six, nine, you have physicality. Like I just want to see him be a little bit more physical at the point of attack and prevent guys from being able to drive him back into the paint. And like, yes, you can still get the contest there, but I just, you don't want the ball to get to the paint, but I, I do like the flashes. He's shown defensively have been fantastic. Like he had fun defensive flashes last year. This year it's been very good. Like he's been probably the best defender on the Wizards. Um, other than me, I mean, they're the way that they've handled Daniel Gafford has been very confusing to me and I really don't like it. I understand there's probably some roster political stuff going on and uh, uh, Robbins and Aldridge mentioned in the piece today that he has been playing less because they're trying to showcase Thomas Bryant and uh, Montres Harrell before the deadline, but I still just hate seeing good players sit because they want to play somebody else to – get them traded but alas um how do you feel about denny's help defense
1: i was gonna say that his closeouts are pretty sublime
0: yeah i do enjoy his closeouts he knows how to close out well those
1: are those are pretty fundamental but um i think that he has some spots that can be similar to Rui, where he might help a little bit too much but overall from what i saw and i i didn't watch all of his minutes as i did hashimura obviously because it was a much larger sample of games but Um, I feel pretty good about him as a defender in general.
0: Yeah, no, he's a plus defender already in my eyes. And I think that there's room for more. Like, I don't want to just immediately be like, he's a guy who can make all defense. But I do think if he irons out a couple of things, like that's not out of the realm of possibility for him.
1: It's funny too how opposite these two players are. I
0: know, they're very different. Cuz they really
1: yeah, they really couldn't be much different aside from the fact that Denny's shot isn't falling and Rui's shot isn't something that people really respect. I think Denny's been contested on about 44% of his threes this year, which might just fall into the realm of like when you have a shot that looks pretty and fluid, people tend to believe in it a little bit more even if it isn't falling at a super high clip all season. Um but the difference between the two of them is, is that what I was saying before, like if people aren't guarding him at the wing, he finds, he finds his spots within the offense to keep it moving. Even if it, even if he isn't going to touch the ball, like he'll remove his defender and spots to get other people open. He has a very good floor sense. Um, he definitely plays well within Wes Unseld's offense and within the flow game and, and knowing how to be a connector piece, I think is what stands out most about him is that he can even direct some traffic in certain spots where, you know, there's a play where a kiss bird will come off uh, motion strong get a pass from Denny, Denny will get it back. And then, you know, if if Rui's not being defended as one of the screeners, he'll motion to Rui on certain plays. It's like, Hey, go cut back door and I'm going to find you where um, he can be a playmaker in those sense. And I do think there's more upside with him to do even more out of the pick and roll with what some of his playmaking has been in those situations and his ability to find rollers.
0: Yeah. So it's actually kind of funny. I wrote about this before the year with him because I totally agree. Like his, uh, I think he's averaging what, like two assists per game this year might be a little bit less than that. Um, And that totally underlies his playmaking ability. He has very good court vision. He's good ball placement. Um, But a lot of it is like you mentioned, his shot is uh, has been a work in progress this year to say the least. Like he took it some last year and he started a lot of the year with Washington before he got injured but like he's had stretches this year where he was taking like four threes a game. Like he had a stretch in, in December where he's taking like almost yeah four or five threes a game wasn't falling. Well, he's taking less now and it's falling better. Like they've, they've tweaked his shot a couple of times this year. Um, And you can tell that they're searching to make it look better. And that was an issue for him coming out of uh, I, I think he played in Maccabi Tel Aviv. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, But like, yeah, that's been an issue for him just his shot in general. And I do think, like, if the Pacers really thought, okay, we can get his shot to a place where he can really force defenses to close out on him, or maybe even a point where we think, okay, he can he can take a shot from behind the screen and be okay. Then I think the world really opens up for what he can do as a playmaker. But until he gets to that point, I think just given he doesn't really have a lot of burst, he actually has like a decent handle, even if it's a little bit mechanical. like uh, he's not going to break somebody down off the dribble without a screen. Um, but I agree with you. Like, I think that there's definitely like I, I'm probably a little bit more intrigued by what Denny could be than than what Rui might be.
1: I actually think he I think he does a, a decent amount in catch and drive situations, because the difference is if he doesn't get defended in the corner, he does similarly to what Edmund Sumner did last year and that he lifts. He lifts up and then catches the ball on the move so that he can go to the basket. So you'll see him do that a lot out of the left where he can put the ball down on his right. And that's what I was getting ready to say is that his left hand is very underdeveloped. Um, If he, if he's in the right corner and people close out to him there, it's going to be dicey if he has to get to the basket, because what he wants to do is when he gets his body into the lane, he wants to stop and pop with about, you know, a six foot floater with his right. And there's times where he's been on the opposite side of the court and he'll twist his body in the wind so that he can still get to the right floater because he doesn't want to finish with his left. There's times where I've seen him put the ball on the floor with his left out of pick and roll where he will then try to get it up and change hands with his right, even when the defense isn't baiting him to do that. Um, It's not that he can't do it at all, but like just as some numbers, Um, he's driven left on 3% of his spot ups and is one of four from the field. Um, Where's my other number on the pick and rolls? Oh, six possessions driving left off of the screen. Um, I think that some of that's because of where he gets the ball in the offense, but I just think that his left hand is, is fairly underdeveloped around the rim, and, and people will bite on that at times and force him to get to the right, and it leads to some awkward shots. So that's something that he would have to develop. But the weird thing is, is I know that this is in relation to Sabonis, but because of what some of his skill set is, like I could see him fitting in between Brogdon and Sabonis. He kind of fits the archetype of a player that you would want in that regard not that yeah. that's going to be a thing but like i, <laughs> yeah, I can i can vision that like i I like denny i like what i saw of him and because like i said west Ensold is running a lot more flow game and that's something that's kind of allowed him to blossom because it's like you know i'm going to do something because i know what spots i can find within this and it just lets him like i said be that connector piece and it fits him well
0: yeah so Yeah, no, and you're totally right on the catching drives too. I meant more like, uh, is he going to actually be able to if he runs a ball screen, is he going to be able to command overs or like is, because he's he's far away from that right now. And uh, like he actually even just looking back at some stuff from last year, he he ran some pick and rolls in the offense and he shows really good playmaking out of it. And it's just Mm -hmm. it's encouraging. And he has good touch, like you mentioned too. Um, the left hand is definitely underdeveloped, but um, he's shown good touch on his floater. He has a little bit of a uh. Um, a little bit of a mid range game that is, it's small sample size, but it's encouraging nonetheless, just the idea of like, okay, well, what if he is able to expand his game out a little bit more? So, yeah, I think, uh, we were definitely locked up on that.
1: Okay. Well, I guess we could move on then to the actual thought of moving Sabonis for these two guys.
0: Um, I mean, I'll just be blunt. No, I don't really, um, I mean, I guess there's more nuance to it, but even if this is for the purpose of uh, like they're they're deciding to rebuild like I don't know maybe there are picks I think that they mentioned like draft assets could be involved too, or maybe Corey Kispert uh, with one of them or maybe it's both of them instead and uh, so I don't know entirely what the package looks like. But
1: can I jump in and just provide listeners with a detail about the draft pick yeah, really quick? Yeah, for sure. So Josh Robbins has the Wizards owe a first round pick to the Oklahoma City Thunder that can be conveyed as early as 2023 when it's top 14 protected, but not but might not be conveyed until as late as 2026. Because of that commitment, Washington right now cannot trade a first round pick to Indiana other than a 2028 first round pick, which I think Bobby Marks mentioned on a podcast that I listened to that you could unprotect that, but um, not a great situation in terms of giving the Pacers uh first round draft compensation, uh, but continue
0: okay. So, yes, my bad on that then. But, uh, I mean, to me, like, I think some people might point to this and be like, oh, this is like just like you know, maybe it's old deep on a bonus. And I just don't, I, I'm not trying to be harsh, but I don't think that, um, this is a similar package to me, like. Obviously, yes, the bonus is not Paul George. Like, just to be completely blunt and honest, like, yeah, that's – no, you're not expecting a similar package back. But in terms of, like – I mean, Rui is going to be 24 next week, uh, and that's not everything. Like, Denny's still – like, he just turned 21 last month. Um, Age is not everything. But in terms of, like, if this team is, quote, unquote, trying to jumpstart a rebuild, which has not been the indication, I'm not entirely sure that – this this is the direction that I would I would pick, um, especially considering how, uh, um, you know how um, they've been about you know like wanting to get the most back for Sabonis if that is a thing you know even if even though like as mentioned in the thing like they're not they're not openly putting Sabonis on the table it sounds like um, and if they were I'd be like okay well what if you could go get Tyrese Halliburton instead from Sacramento or something like that my I, I just I don't entirely see it from either direction. Even if you think that this is going to quote unquote make the team better for next year, I would, I would question that. I don't really see how this would make the team better for next year. Um, Maybe some outlier stuff could happen that I don't anticipate, but right now, I mean, I, where are you at on it?
1: From, I don't really, I think both teams kind of need to hang up the phone to an extent. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't, I'm not really sure that I completely understand it for the wizards. I think that it would help Bradley Beal get easier shots for sure. But I almost more envision a world where these wings are playing with someone like Sabonis or, or Ben Simmons, which is kind of what I was saying before. Like if you had told me that, you know, you could, you could trade miles and get Denny and there would actually be draft compensation, similar to like, you know, what Aaron Gordon, what the Aaron Gordon deal was that I've brought up many times with Denver and Orlando, like, I think that makes some sense as a, as a younger guy that you could buy on that I think actually makes sense roster wise and might still be able to develop and do more for what you could get there value wise. Like I'm not saying I would definitely do it, but when this is like the internet has been having some really wild takes about Sabonis which has made my Twitter sabbatical that much more enjoyable. He is the Pacers best player. So if you're going to be trading your best player, regardless of what happened with Paul George, which the difference there was, you know, it it seems like people have forgotten that Kevin Pritchard didn't get promoted that year until May. And Paul George was traded in June and Paul George was entering a contract year. To me, when I'm looking at the Sabonis situation, he is their best player. And he's not entering a contract year. So I don't really know why they would need to be pressed to take this particular deal or really any deal in the next week or two. When, you know, right now, a lot of teams, at least on the draft compensation part, like you wait until the off season, you're going to have a better sense of what those picks are than you do right now and where teams are going to land in the draft order. And beyond that, Sabonis is a player, contrary to what I said before, but I think a lot of teams are going to view him where you know you are going to build certain things around him and that's easier to accomplish in the summertime if the Pacers are actually interested in moving him at this point, which is something I still kind of question just from my own perspective, where you might have more teams entering the fray than what it sounds like there are right now, where I believe Jake said it's predominantly Sacramento, New Orleans, which I find somewhat puzzling, and the Wizards. So... I just don't feel like I mean, I will get your feedback on this one particular question that I've been having and seeing a lot lately is if and I don't know if this is coming from the Pacers or it's just a media thing, but it's like, well, you know, the Pacers were, you know, Miles Turner was going to be one of the first dominoes to go ahead of the trade deadline. But then because of the foot injury, you know, now they might need to move Sabonis. Do you understand that line of thought?
0: No, Um
1: I don't get why those two things are, are two thoughts together. Like it, even if right now teams are scared about whatever his foot injury is, which Jake had in that report that he's had a scan and that he's expected to come back at the latest being early March. Like, even if, even if they're afraid to give up assets for that and don't know how, you know, what his situation is going to be down the stretch or in the playoffs. Why just because you can't trade him for value right now, do you automatically have to pivot to trading the other guy who it doesn't sound like they were as interested in trading two weeks ago.
0: Yeah, no, that wouldn't make any sense to me. Um, No, not in the slightest. Like I, I think like maybe the only potential angle is like the locker room really needs to change, which I get that the locker room really needs to change, but you don't do that. That's like, I mean, that's a fireball fence. That would be pretty dumb.
1: And that's what's interesting is I've seen so much impetus. I feel like you and you and I are kind of on the outskirts of this where it's like, oh, if the front office doesn't make a move on one of these two bigs, that's just the last straw. You know, they, they have to go. And, like, I don't really get why the pitchforks have been out in that regard anyways. Like, I generally think that Kevin Pritchard has been good at his job. But if they can't get value right now at the deadline because of what a foot situation is or because of what other teams in the market, you're – what is it going to hurt if they do wait until June? Like, again, cause I still think you can find, you could have been finding minutes for IJAX up until this point. And if he's healthy, you still can. Like, I, I just don't think that any of that's a viable reason to be like, Oh, we just automatically need to trade Sabonis right now. And to be honest, I don't really understand what the rush is on that in general. Like I get that he would have an extra year left, but he's 25 years old. And I get that there's like a big trend right now to, diminish his two all-star selections whatever on that I know what I've seen him do over the last month plus and what I've seen him do the last two years I think he's better now and I don't think that it's bad management from the Pacers to hang on see what there is continue to gauge the market in the summer and see if there's a way to make the team competitive with him and if there isn't gauge what other things are available, then I don't really understand why that's something that has to get done right now. And in this particular deal, I don't ever like to see guys as, as completely finished products. I think that everyone can continue to improve. And and Rui has had, you know, as you mentioned off top, we don't know entirely what his situation was. But um, right now, what we know of them, both of them kind of seem like role players to me on a roster that kind of already has role players And then Sabonis wouldn't be there to be facilitating and what this offense is. And it's just kind of hard for me to wrap my head around it in general.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I I fully agree. And I think just on the point about um, whether big, the whether or not the bigs get traded, I mean, we, we both were, I think, uh, I think I probably was a little bit more on the one of them needed to be traded in the off season. Like we've talked about it like at length. I, yeah. I think you were definitely more open to them uh, coming in and trying things with Rick. And I, I should have probably been more open to it too. But um, like, I, I would agree too. like, if I, I would say the pitch force can be out if the move isn't made by the draft though. Like if, if that happens and like, okay, I have, I have some, I
1: don't I, think that's going to happen. Yeah. I don't, I, I mean... don't think it's going to
0: happen either, but I agree. Like, I think if. Like, they, they could not plan for Miles having a foot injury this no. close to the trade deadline. Um, so Now, I
1: will say I still find it somewhat questionable that if he was having soreness for multiple games, why yeah. it was that yes. he was playing in you know garbage time against the Suns and some of the other stuff that was going on. I don't know exactly what those circumstances were. Um, without having information, I won't comment on it excessively. But, I mean, to all reports, from what it sounded like locally – and from what national reporters have mentioned, it sounded like most people around the league expected that Miles was going to be one of the first players traded. Yeah. So it's not like that was completely off the table. Like it seems like there's the sense that like, Oh, Herb Simon and Kevin are just completely satisfied with this team. And I just find that to be ludicrous. Like I don't think either one of them are satisfied with what product they're seeing out on the court um, or that they aren't trying to make the team better or figure out what direction they need to go. in. I just think that this is kind of how a trade deadline operates um, until people know what's going on with Ben Simmons, a lot of these teams are interconnected. A lot of the same teams have the interest in Jeremy Grant and one of the Pacers centers and John Collins. So until you know all of those musical chairs move, I don't really think that it's egregious that nothing has happened to this point. And like you said, they can't completely control this injury situation to know what direction they're going to go in. So I don't really think that there has to be a rush when Sabonis has an extra year on his deal to hurry up in the next week and, and find something there, especially given the way that he's been playing. But um, that's just my opinion.
0: Oh, that makes two of us. And I agree. Like he's this is the best year of his career, despite what the Pacers have done. So no disagreements from uh, from me on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, just for me personally, like if they are going to make a deal in the summer or they just, for whatever reason, have a different opinion of him than I do. Like it needs to be for a player that I'm going to say, yeah, that's going to be their best player. That's going to be a top option, or that's a guy who could potentially develop into being that. And I'm not sure that this wizard deal satisfies any of that. Like that you're going to be drafting somebody who could potentially, you're going to get a high enough draft pick soon enough that, you know, that's what they're going to be, or that you're going to get a player who's going to be better than him. I mean, there's a reason why the wizards would be willing to do that. And while their players are liking tweets about him and following him and whatever other like social media shenanigans have been going on. So.
0: Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel similarly. If, if you're trading him, you're either getting somebody who you view as equal or better, or you're starting things over in a way that you think is going to put you in a better place than now. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else that we want to hit on, on this? Oh yes. Uh, Lance had a, had his contract guaranteed for the rest of the season. How do you feel?
1: I mean, I think that's what everybody expected. Yeah, and I think it makes sense because we don't entirely know what Karras's future is going to be after the trade deadline. They definitely need people that can run offense, and he satisfies that. I added my little just news brief about them adding him for the rest of the season today. That you know the Pacers are scoring more points off of his passes, dribbling off a pick, whether to a cutter, spot up shooter or the role man than what's been the case with Karis this season. And he is being more pass first in those situations in terms of frequency. So I won't say that Lance has been without any fault in these games. I think he certainly made some mistakes and his jump shot has been, you know, what his jump shot is. But I mean, I think that there was definitely reason to retain him. And I think that it, it also made sense to do it just for the rest of this year. And that's not to say that, you know, something might not change in the summer, but I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense to have offered him a multi-year deal right now. when you still have TJ McConnell under contract till 2024 after you just signed him. Cause I don't really see them playing off the bench together and there being enough handling for both of them, but we also don't know where the roster is going to stand. So, you know, you can look at it when the season's over and see um, what spots are open. I mean, it was a little bit curious that with Sabonis and health and safety protocols, they didn't look at doing another hardship deal I thought that was a little bit interesting because, I mean, unless they know that Sabonis is going to clear soon, then he would have been ineligible if he came out, but they don't have a roster spot. So if they are going to make a trade and they, it's not an even one, like, you know, they trade out Sabonis or whoever it is and take two players back. Like what was being suggested in this Washington deal, they're going to have to clear another roster spot for that to work.
0: Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't know. It is kind of, interesting um it feels like part of the i mean, how I, mean I think you, they're
1: smart so they must they clearly have more information than we do yeah. about whatever's going on if that's like i said if it's going to be sabonis clearing because maybe he's close and has had negative 10 at least one negative or if they're just thinking you know there isn't a deal out there for us where we're going to take more than one player i don't know what the situation is
0: yeah can, can i just one thing that i have thought of um can we just admire for a second how wild it is that Lance actually shot 35% from three in 2013-14? Um, just considering how all over the place his jump shot has been since then. I think about that a lot. Um, it is kind of remarkable. Uh, like Especially considering especially, how he likes to take his jumper too.
1: Yeah, and especially considering what the spacing was like in that offense. Yeah. That he was hitting him to that degree. 13-14 yeah.
0: Lance is just... God, that was an experience.
1: I almost like 2012-2013 Lance better. I think that my fondest memories of Lance are probably from the semifinal Knicks series. Oh, yeah? uh, Game six. Yeah.
0: I can see that. Thirteen, fourteen, I, yeah, he was.
1: I mean, the 2012-13 Pacers were far fun, more fun than the thirteen, fourteen Pacers.
0: Well, I like the I I pretend the 13, 14 Pacers stopped after uh, pre All Star break was the end before of the 13,
1: they went 14. on that road trip to Sacramento yeah, and before Phoenix, bad Denver, things started
0: happening. <laughs> was, everything unraveled. that's when the, yeah, I the, they actually just stopped that season uh, in mid mid January. So you know. It's a great year. They they crowned the Pacers Eastern Conference champs because of they had the record. So you know it was I'm
1: gonna have to look for times. that banner the next time I met Game
0: Yes. Uh what was it? They were like 38 and 12 over the first 50 or
1: something like that. Legendary.
0: Yeah, can put that in the rafters. But all right. I think uh I think that wraps us up for today. Caitlin, you have anything else you want to get off your chest before we get out of here?
1: No, I think I've covered everything. I mean, I I feel like I should just have like a hat box. There's an episode of Gilmore Girls where Rory and and (laughs) Lorelai, look what I'm doing today. I've brought up Lizzie McGuire and Gilmore Girls.
0: Uh, I've seen Gilmore (laughs) Girls like two times through. I grew up with with an older sister and a mom who's a teacher. So I had no control over the TV uh, over the summer.
1: Okay. So then you're familiar with the episode where Rory and Lorelai are fighting and for like months on end and, and Lorelai keeps having stuff she wants to tell Rory. So she puts it in a hat box. And then when yeah. they reunite, she reads it all. I feel like that's what I need to do with you. Like all of my tweets, I just need to write on notes of paper and put them in a hat box. And then when we get on the podcast, I can say all of my thoughts that I didn't tweet.
0: <laughs> yes, we can definitely do that. I uh, I will find us a hat box so we can put it in between the uh, Ohio and Indiana border. Um, would be perfect. Exactly. All right. Well, Caitlin, this was great. To everyone listening, thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please be sure to go rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think on Twitter, on IC. Uh, and most importantly, just have a good rest of your day and enjoy uh enjoy the weekend.